Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg at the Schuyler on this very beautiful Saturday. Um, before we get started, some quick housekeeping to go over. As always, we have an events newsletter up at the front of the store. Uh, take a copy, look over our featured authors, and make sure to come back for another event. Lots of good stuff happening at the Schuyler, as always, and all these events are free and open to the public. Now, an event like this does not happen in a vacuum without some very supportive partners in the community, and so I'd like to give a special shout-out to two organizations here. They're our sponsors for tonight's event, and that is the Harrisburg Young Professionals and the Harrisburg Regional Chamber, two really great pillars in our community to network, get involved, develop skills, performance, um, really all the good stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. So you'll see these packets uh, floating around. Feel free to grab one. Uh, Check out what each organization is doing in Harrisburg um, and how you can get involved. Uh, but quickly, just another thank you to both of these sponsors. Tonight would not have been possible without their support. At this time, I'd like to introduce the two very awesome human beings we have on stage tonight. To my left here is Molly Sullivan French. She has 14 years of experience in television, 11 of those years in sports. Molly currently works for the Philadelphia Eagles. What happened Eagles. in those other three years? <laughs> Uh, as a host and reporter, and before that, she was the Philadelphia 76ers sideline reporter for seven seasons. A graduate of the University of North Carolina, Molly currently lives in Philly. Further to my left is the man of the hour, David Epstein. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene, and the book we're all here for tonight, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He currently lives in D.C. Now, if you haven't heard the big news, David's new book, Range, has just been listed as an instant New York Times bestseller in its first week. Can we give it up for David? Thank you. As a bookseller, this is actually a pretty big accomplishment. It's not an insignificant feat, so we're here tonight to keep the momentum, momentum building for David and the book. Now, I could list all the praise this book has received from the New York Times, Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink, NPR, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, The Atlantic, and many other more outlets and people, but... I'll leave you here with my favorite blurb about the book uh, from author Amanda Ripley. Quote, I want to give range to any kid who is being forced to take violin lessons but really wants to learn the drums, to any programmer who secretly dreams of becoming a psychologist, to everyone who wants to, humans to thrive in an age of robots. Range is full of surprises and hope. It's a 21st century survival guide. Without further ado, please join me giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Molly and David. Alex, thank you so much. I'm going to put you on the spotlight here for a second, because I think we all specialize in one way or another, right? I mean, think about that for a moment. Alex, your Twitter profile, bookseller with hashtag TTP, that's trust the process, that's kind of a Philly thing. Uh, so just a little highlight there. But I, you know, I'm so excited to be here in part uh, because my big takeaway from reading the book, and I think it's such a vital read for everybody, right? And that's what we all share being under this roof, that we're all gonna take different lessons. But I think the, the big takeaway for me is that there, there's not one path to success, but rather there's the most effective an efficient path to excellence. And um, so that's kind of what I took from it. Um, how many experts do we have in the house? How many experts? Come on, don't be shy. How many experts? Uh, perhaps, all right, fair enough. Uh -oh, I like the moxie over there. Bias. I like the moxie. Uh, perhaps a better question is how many of us really want to improve at performance? Right, Dave? Okay, all right. So case in point, on the cover, we have here at the very top, 
I loved range. Now, big words coming from Malcolm, right, that we talked about a little bit. Why was that significant to have him at the top here? Well, one, I think he's one of the storytellers, you know, of a generation, but also the rest of the words on that blurb are, I think, something like, for reasons I can't explain, David Epstein makes me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told everything I thought about something was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, which, as a reader, I just think is kind of a cool blurb, first of all. But the, the book, part of the idea for the book came out of a debate I had with Malcolm um, previously, where after my first book, The Sports Gene, as he would say, I devoted several pages to attacking his work. That's how he puts it. Um, and we were, we were invited to the, the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, which was founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets, to have a debate that's on YouTube, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene. I was criticizing the, the science that underlies the 10,000 hour rule for, for reasons I, I can explain, but um, he's very, this was the first time we were gonna meet was for this debate, and he's very clever, and I didn't wanna get embarrassed. Um, so I tried to anticipate his arguments, and I knew, we were talking about athletic development particularly, and I knew he would have to argue for early specialization as a primary advantage. So I just went and looked at, uh, I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated. <laughs> I said, I'm gonna go, if that's the hypothesis, let's go look at what the science of athletic development says. And it turns out that pretty much everywhere you look, athletes who go on to become elite actually have what scientists call a sampling period, where they play a range of sports, often in an unstructured manner. Uh, they, they gain this broad variety of skills that scaffold later learning. They learn about their interests, they learn about their abilities and they systematically delay specializing um, until later than their peers, with golf as a possible exception that we can talk about. So I brought that up on stage, and afterward when he came off, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was like, I didn't have anything for that, because it was incompatible with his hypothesis. So we sort of became running buddies after that and started talking on our own time, and we were invited back in March, and in this one is also on YouTube, and at the end he says, I now think I conflated two ideas, the idea that it's important to have a lot of practice to become good at something with the idea that in order to become good at X, you should start as early as possible doing X and only X. And so I thought the way he nuanced his view is very representative of some of the thinkers later in the book who, who developed good judgment about the world. So that's a long story, but so it was important to me because I think it was, instead of seeing our debate as zero sum, I think we both went into it trying to learn and nuancing our views and it became like a very productive intellectual partnership for me. It was very much a real recognize real moment because you guys both went toe to toe in a healthy debate. I invite you guys to look that up on, on YouTube. Uh, but research, like we were talking before we stepped on stage here, doesn't always say what we think it says, right? So I'm gonna stick with the cover. I can hear Mary Poppins singing from my daughter's room because a cover is not a book, right? But I'm gonna stay uh, with these keys. And I think there's 12 of them, count them up. Uh, but the significance of that, there's not one master key. So, so break that down for us. That's right. So there was, a, there was a quote I loved when I was reading Arnold Toynbee, this famous historian uh, who sort of studied, you know, one of the themes of what he studied was adjust, social adjustment in a changing world and, and in response to technology. And I came across this quote um, that I loved in his, I think it was volume 12 of his a Study of History uh, that says, no... No tool is omnicompetent. There is no such thing as a master key that unlocks all doors. And so I put that as one of the epigraphs in the front of the book because to me it represented this. He, he was, in some ways, he was talking about other historians who had these single theories of everything that clearly were not appropriate to the complexity of the things they were analyzing. And I thought it represented this having many, instead of having one master key, you have many different keys or many different ways that you can approach a, a single problem. And that's one of the strengths of the kind of people um, I write about. 
So in Philadelphia, we're all about the process, right? So let's, let's kind of start here. When you first set out uh, to examine this project, what was yeah. your motivation? What was your source of, of inspiration for this? Well, so there was, there was first that issue of, so the reason the, the introduction is called Roger versus Tiger is because um, the Tiger Woods story is probably the most famous story of development of anything, I would say. You know, and, and I think there are six best-selling books just in the US that were centered on extrapolating the Tiger Woods model to anything else that you would like to be good at. Um, and the, whereas Roger Federer, right, we, we all know him, as, as a pro athlete, we know him as well as Tiger Woods, but nobody knows his development story, which is that he played a ton of different sports, w one of which was tennis. Uh, his, 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 let's see, skiing, wrestling, soccer, basketball, rugby, badminton, skateboarding, I'm sure I'm missing a couple. Um, and his mother was a tennis coach, she actually refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. Um, <laughs> He, uh, when his coaches wanted to bump him up a level, he declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. And one of my favorite stories, when he became good enough, because he was a good youth athlete, when he became good enough to warrant an interview from a local paper, and the reporter asked him, uh, if you ever become a pro, what will you buy with your first paycheck? And he says, a Mercedes. And, and his mother's appalled at this and asks the reporter if she can hear the interview tape, and the reporter obliges, and it turns out Roger just said mere CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, <laughs> not a Mercedes. <laughs> and so it was a very different, as, as, as Roger Federer noted in 2006, my story is completely different from his. And so partly my question was, which one of these is the norm? We hear one, we don't hear the other, which is the norm? And it turned out that it was the Roger path. And I kind of filed that in the back of my head and then when I got involved with the Pat Tillman Foundation, you know, the foundation named for the, the late NFL player, I was invited to talk about, well, I was just invited to talk, because one of my former track and field training partners was a Tillman scholar. They give scholarships to aid veterans, soldiers, and military spouses in career changes. Um, and I decided to talk about late specialization in sports and research, and since they weren't athletes, they research it in a couple other areas and tack that on the last five minutes of the talk. And it was like cathartic for them. Like they all started coming up and saying how they felt behind and being told that they didn't have like the normal resume for whatever they were applying for. One of the guys was a former, I think he was on SEAL Team 5. His undergrad degrees were geophysics and history and he was in Dartmouth and Harvard grad school at the time of the talk and he sent me this note saying, I'm so relieved, you know, I've been told I'm so behind and I'm just like, if this guy's getting the message that he's behind, this is kind of crazy. And so those, it brought the sports stuff back to my head and I decided I think there's something to, to look into here. Yeah, and to be candid, uh, Alex, when you first reached out, I don't know where Alex went, he's very busy. Uh, but I, I originally thought this was essentially just, you know, part two of the sport gene, the New York Times bestseller. Uh, because, you know, David, you've been all over all the, the media outlets that I, that I tune into, all the biggies, right? You guys have seen him left and right, but really this is so much bigger than sport, um, I think that we've all we've all had a bad boss or two. Bad is such a loaded word, right? But for the suits, for the executives who perhaps are reading this book, um, and from a management leadership level, what do you hope they take away? Yeah, I mean, a number of things, but but one of those is I think, and this does have an analogy in sports actually, is to diversify their pipelines because. I think things like LinkedIn are actually making it much easier for them to find square pegs for their square holes. Whereas some of the research I highlight by a woman named Abby Griffin who studies so-called serial innovators. These are people who make creative contributions not just once but over and over and over. 
And, and when I was reading through her research, it's like this very staid, you know, um, psychological surveys of these serial innovators and so on. And, and, then, and then eventually, in, in one of her works, she sort of steps outside that and says, okay, now I want to give advice to HR people. You're all screening these people out because you're, making, you're defining your job too narrowly. These people have usually zigzagged. They've often come from another domain. They have a need to be in contact with people outside of their domain. They tend to have more hobbies. They read more and more widely than their colleagues. They appear to flit among ideas, all these things on and on and on and on. They use analogies from other domains in order to problem solve. And one of the chapters about analogical, pro using analogies to solve problems. And so you're screening them out because you're, you're making this too, too narrow description. And it turns out that's, that's actually in some sports programs that have reformed. Like when the UK was not doing very well in the Olympics for many years and basically their revelation was to diversify their entry pipeline, mm -hmm. to allow these people who didn't have the perfect sort of resume for coming in to, to try to get in. And so I would think for people who do personnel selection, um, they, uh, they should be wary of that. And, and they themselves are often that, right? LinkedIn did research on a half million members. They have these great databases, right? Because mm -hmm. previous research is like 50 people, and LinkedIn has a half million to see what is the best um, predictor of who would become an executive. And one of the best predictors was the number of different job functions that someone had worked across in their industry because they get this sort of holistic view. But that's each additional job function saved them three years in terms of experience in getting to the, to the C-suite. But we don't hear that stuff. We just hear precocity. I, I was just at, sorry, one other thing. Yeah, I know no, I'm going on long here. Great. Okay. Um, I have a very digressive brain that I attempt to organize on the page, but it takes time. <laughs> it's a reporter's dream when they just go. Um, <laughs> No, I know, right? It used to be like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. score more points than the other team in the yes, next half. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so I was just at this event for the Motley Fool, which is like this investment publication effort. And before we went up, because I write about this in the book, they put a poll up for the audience where they could vote with their cell phone, which was what do you think the average age of a founder of like a blockbuster startup is on the day of founding, not when it becomes a blockbuster. And the, the options were 25, 35, 45, 55. And 25 was the overwhelming favorite, right? Because we all know, like, when Mark Zuckerberg was 22 and said young people are just smarter, like, that sticks. <laughs> but research by Northwestern and MIT and the Census Bureau that was just out shows that it's actually 45 and a half on the day of founding, and that these people have often zigzagged quite a bit before they can even identify that sort of turf that they want to compete on uniquely. But just like the Tiger story, that's the only one we hear, and the Mark Zuckerberg story, that's the one we hear. And so we extrapolate from these stories that are not really helpful or, or real or representative of all the science in this area. So I sort of wanted to rebut that. And which leads right into a chapter where the words jumped out for me. The cult of the head start. Mm -hmm. You're a new parent, a yes. four-month-old son. Uh, props to that. What, you know, parents, we've got a three-year-old. My, my husband's here. You know, a lot of parents in the mix. Uh, break that down. The cult of the head start in terms of sampling. And we've got summer season on deck, mm -hmm. right? Uh, what, what do you hope parents take away from, from this? Yeah, so when I, was <laughs> when I was living in Brooklyn until, now I live in Washington, D.C., but there was a U7 travel soccer team that met across the street from me. And I, I don't think, right, that anybody thinks six-year-olds can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people that they have to travel, right? Th this is, they are customers for right. someone who is trying to keep them from doing all these other sports sampling, right? And so this doesn't happen in some places like France where they have a more holistic development pipeline and they're not, and it's not a zero sum between the youth coaches and the, and the adult coaches. So for me, I think, well, so the cult of the head start is, is 
um, what I refer to as sort of the, the, the head start industrial complex that, that tries to make parents feel uh, that they will let their kid get behind if they don't do certain things. And one of the other stories, so some of the stories that are essential to this are the Tiger Woods one, which shows up in a ton of places, the Mozart story, and, and we're telling both of those stories wrong, by the way. So as Tiger, both of those fathers, there are a number of books that talk about how the fathers manufactured those kids, which is not the case. Tiger's father was responding to his display of unusual interest and prowess in golf. Mozart's the same. I was looking at, at, at letters and found these letters where a musician who visited um, recounts Mozart when some other musicians come to play with his father. He recounts little Wolfgang coming in and saying, I want to play second violin. And his father's like, you haven't had any lessons, like go away. And he starts crying. And so one of the musicians says, I'll go play with him in another room so he'll stop crying. And then suddenly they hear the second violin part coming from the other room. And his father starts crying and they come in and the letter writer says, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist he could also play the first violin, <laughs> which he then does with, with his own made up fingering. So, I think, first of all, parents should not be worried about missing Tiger Woods or Mozart. In fact, if they want to increase the chances of that incredibly rare phenomenon, they should expose them to more things and see if they take to it like that. But the, the story I focus on is this one of the Polgar family that is as famous in like the performance literature, but not as famous as Tiger Woods in popular literature. And this gentleman, Laszlo Polgar, whose uh, family was basically wiped out in the Holocaust, decided that he wanted to have, he's um, a Hungarian gentleman, decided that he wanted to have a large and very special family, and he studied education and decided that he, could turn, he would turn his kids into geniuses. He said normal education produces the gray average mass, and that if he gave his kids an early specialized start, he could turn them into geniuses, and really this would be to show that you could do this to anyone. You could turn anyone into a genius by early specialization. And he picks chess, um, to, because this was at the time when um, you know, the, the chess was like a Cold War proxy for the, for the US and Russia at the time. And he starts training his, his first daughter, Susan, at age three, and she becomes really good. By four, she's going to like smoky chess clubs in Budapest and beating grown men. Um, and she goes on to become the best uh, women's chess player in the world. And in fact, she's the first woman to qualify for what was then called the Men's World Championship. And I, and I think because of the things she did, um, it's now just the World Championship, not the Men's World Championship and her two other sisters became part of the sort of project or experiment. Um, one of them became an international master, which is a step down from grandmaster, and the other, Judith, became the best, uh, best female player ever, and up to that point. Um, and this is another story, so like the book Talent is Overrated uses this story and says this is the key to get good at anything that you care about. The problem is chess is what the psychologist Robin Hogarth calls a kind learning environment which means it is based on repetitive patterns. Um, it has a huge store of previous knowledge. People, preferably people take turns for a kind uh, learning environment. Um, the rules never change. Uh, next steps are very clear. Feedback is automatic and fully accurate after everything you do, like golf. And these kind learning environments turned out to be the incredible rarity in the world. So they are, as opposed to wicked learning environments where Next steps are not often clear. Rules can change. Um, feedback can be inaccurate or delayed. That's kind of more of the work that most of us do. And one of the problems with extrapolating from kind learning environments, other than that most of the things we care about aren't, is that they are extremely easy to automate, which is why it's one of the reasons why chess is one of the first things that was, that was automated. So 
as one of the, and, and, and then those, even the companies have extrapolated from those kind learning environments and said, well, we can apply our AI to more complicated things. So I don't know if anybody followed Google flu trends, but Google AI got good at gaming and they said, well, now we're going to use it to predict the flu. And there was this big paper in the journal of science um, saying Google's using search query information predicted the spread of flu in the US as accurately and more quickly than the CDC. And, but then it started getting worse because the rules don't stay the same for human behavior. And about three, four years out, it missed by 100%. And if you go now, Google has a holding page that says, it's early days for this kind of prediction, so we're going to put it on pause for now, right? Or you look at Watson in healthcare, which was this huge, how he's going to transform healthcare, right? I'm sure you've all experienced how Watson has transformed your healthcare. <laughs> um, yeah. But so one of the researchers I, researchers I talked to were worried it performed so poorly that they were worried it would taint the reputation of AI in healthcare going forward. As one of the researchers I talked to said, the reason Watson destroys at Jeopardy and does horrible in medical research is because we know the answers to Jeopardy. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the, the definition of the kind learning environment. And so we've, we've extrapolated this head start stuff that works in these in very particular types of environments. Mm -hmm. You have to specialize early if you want to be a chess grandmaster. Your chances of becoming, reaching international master status are higher drops from one in four to one in 55 if you haven't started pattern study by age 12. So it works in chess, but chess is not representative of almost anything else that you would like to get good at. See what I mean? David makes us think and rethink and you're so smooth about it and that's what your writing is too. When we, we talk about grit and how you measure grit, what's the trouble with too much grit? Whether it's draft day or the boardroom or the grocery store, Wegmans on a, on a Sunday, uh, what, what's the trouble with too much grit? Yeah, that's the title of one of my chapters. People have probably heard of grit, of the psychological construct of grit, and it's based on a 12-question survey, most associated with Angela Duckworth. But, and the survey rewards mm -hmm. half the points for uh, perseverance, essentially, your resilience, and the other half for consistency of interests. So if you sometimes don't finish a project or your interests change, you lose points. The most famous study of grit was done on incoming cadets to West Point, the US Military Academy. And it, it turned out that grit was a better predictor than traditional measures of who would get through what's called beast barracks. It's like the orientation at West Point that's physically and emotionally rigorous. Um, and most people get through it, but grit was a better predictor than were this thing called whole candidate score. Um, and so that, that sort of lit this grit fire where school systems started testing for grit, companies test for grit and things like that. But there are a number of problems with some of, of using grit that way. And some of the critique of grit that I have in the book comes straight out of the researchers' papers. Like, they were pretty honest about some of these limitations. They've just sort of been lost in translation. So, for example, those, those gritty cadets, if you then zoom out and watch, you know, look at their career progression, um, about half of them drop out of the army on the day that they are allowed, right? So, have they lost their grit over the course, you know, of that progression? No, it turns out that they've developed other interests. So, well, I guess in that sense, maybe they have lost some of their grit because they would score differently on, on the grit survey. And the army at first thought that this was indeed a grit problem, but they couldn't fix it. Then they thought it was a money problem, so they started throwing money at their most talented officers to try to get them to stay. The ones who were going to stay anyway stayed, and the ones who wanted to do other stuff and, and took the money, and the ones who wanted to do other stuff left, and that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money. And then they realized that it wasn't a grit problem, it was a career matching problem. So instead of saying, here's your career path, go up or out, 
they started what they called talent-based branching. This phenomenon of, of West Point cadets quitting was only since the knowledge economy. It's like since the 90s, where you can get certain skills and transfer them laterally in a way that you couldn't when people were doing more repetitive tasks. So I think, I think the rise of the generalist is, is in some ways rising with the, with the knowledge economy. But, and so this talent-based branching program they started where they take an officer, they pair them with a coach, and they say, here are a bunch of career tracks. Start sampling one at a time. The coach will help you reflect on how this fits your interests or abilities. And then you'll start zigzagging until we get you better what economists call match quality, the degree of fit between your interests, your abilities, and the work that you do, which turns out to be incredibly important um, for your motivation, for your performance level. And what these researchers who studied that, their basic conclusion was when you get fit, it looks like grit. So when you put someone in the right spot, they start displaying all the habits that you associate with grit, and that this is not actually a stable characteristic that runs across everything you do. And I mean, right, I was a college athlete. Some of the, I would say, grittiest people I ever saw on the 800 track. 800-meter runner, not just any college athlete. That's yeah, the yeah. most grueling race. Well, I think, side note there for you. I think the mile is the most grueling, but um, it's probably one up from whatever you train for. But, uh, <laughs> but right, some, some of those athletes were the super gritty on the track and total chickens in the classroom and vice versa. And it's like demonstrably true in psychological research that grit is not the stable characteristic anyway. And so I think it, it made the focus on more testing for something that is uh, purported to be a stable personality trait and that is, is clearly not. It's, it's, a, it's a psych psychologists who study this say it's a state, not a trait. It's, it's a function of the situation you're in as opposed to something that's inherent and unchanging in your personality. Uh, another phrase that comes up in your book lateral thinking versus wither technology. Yeah. And you say that this is the golden age of opportunity, hear this, golden age of opportunity for generalists, why? So that, I, I love that phrase, so can I explain that phrase? Yeah, please, so, please. Yeah, lateral thinking with withered technology. So that phrase comes from this guy named Gunpei Yokoi, a Japanese man who didn't score well on his electronics exams. Um, and so he had to take a job in Kyoto at a low-level job as a machine maintenance worker at a playing card company in Kyoto where all his better scoring colleagues went off to big firms in Tokyo. And the playing card company was in trouble. And again, he's just a machine maintenance worker. And so, but they, were, they realized, the president realized they had to diversify from playing cards because that wasn't cutting it anymore. And Yokoi realized that he was not equipped to work on the cutting edge, but that there was so much information becoming available that he could just combine stuff that was already under, well understood and cheaper in ways that specialists could no longer see because they were so narrow. So lateral thinking meant taking information that was ordinary in one area and taking it somewhere where it becomes extraordinary. And withered technology meant uh, technology was already well understood, so he didn't have to be at the cutting edge. So he started just doing that. And that he started a toy and game operation at that company, which is called Nintendo, um, which was a 19th century playing card company prior to him starting a toy and game operation. And all he did is try to look for technology that had been left behind while people were racing to the cutting edge and combine it in new ways. So one of his great breakthroughs was the Game Boy, which used a processor that was a decade outdated, a screen that looks like, you know, like rotting salad, um, <laughs> four grayscale shades of graphics that smeared across the screen when it moved quickly, and came out right when Sega and Atari's color uh, handhelds came out, and Yokoi <laughs> recounted. Actually, this, this was a cool thing because this is, well, lucky for me, none of his work had been uh, appeared in English, so I hired some translators to translate his work, and then it's like, great, I've got some new stuff that's new for Americans, <laughs> so it's lucky <laughs> research find. Um, Very savvy. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
so so the, the color ones are coming out, and Yokoi recounts his colleague coming to him and saying, like, bad news, Sega and Atari are hitting the market right before us with color. Oh, and, uh, hitting the market before us, and Yokoi says, are they color? And his colleague says, yes, they are. And Yokoi says, then we're fine, don't worry about it. Because he realized the stuff that was important to the consumers was the gameplay, the number of games they would have, the durability, the battery life. Um, and so using this older technology, he was able to make it cheaper, sturdier, um, could go for weeks on batteries, and it was sort of like how iPhone app developers are now. Because the technology was understood, they started pumping out tons of games, where the game development was much slower for the newer technology. In fact, in, in the research of this, I went to my parents' house in Chicago in the basement. Which and your dad's here. Yeah. Props yeah. to the dad. Visiting the grandson, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I picked up my Game Boy, which was... My old Game Boy, which was like covered in, I don't know, some black stuff. I couldn't figure out what it was. Flipped it open. The batteries had expired in 2007 and 2013, and I flipped <laughs> it on and played Tetris for a couple minutes before it burned out. Um, so that became the best-selling video game console of the 20th century and, and set the philosophy for Nintendo uh, from there forth. Like, so with the Wii, they realized that, that cutting-edge graphics was not the problem. It was the complexity of gameplay. So they just made the controllers easier to use, and then Queen Elizabeth you know, got videoed playing Wii bowling or whatever, and poof, um, so that, that became the philosophy for Nintendo. And, and if you look at patent research, so I try to, I use these stories in the book, but I try to ground them in, in what the science says about this more broadly because I don't want to do the thing I'm criticizing people of, of saying, you know, here's this one person, use them as the example if that's not what the science says. So patent research showed that from about the middle of the 20th century to about the late 80s, people who focused their work in one technological class, so the patent office has about 450 technological classes, we're making bigger contributions. But starting in about the 1990s, uh, that changed, and it became people who were spreading their work across a larger number of technological classes and merging them for their projects. So I think this is, this Yokoi success sort of was at the front edge of this, this phenomenon that developed more broadly. And, um you know, it's clear why you're one of the best science writers in the game, but you were oh, recently on Bill Simmons' podcast, yeah. which if I typically, if I mention this Boston guy in Philadelphia, I get 86, but the Sixers yeah. Celtics aren't playing, so I digress. Uh, but you guys did mention the, what was it, the Dark Horse project yeah. and short-term opportunities, which I found yeah. fascinating. Can you break that, that down a little bit for us? Yeah, the Dark Horse project was this study at Harvard, essentially of how people find match quality. Um, work that fits them. And, and the, the criteria was actually, they were actually looking at fulfillment, not, a lot of the people were successful in the ways that people like to measure money or whatever, but, um, but fulfillment was really their, their dependent variable. Um, and so they started, as they were doing their research and talking to their subjects, um, what they realized was these people who were fulfilled uh, would often come in, not all of them, but the large majority, and would say, don't tell people to do what I did. I started in this other thing, I thought that was going to be my life's work, and then I got off it, and it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, and I did this and that, and then I combined something to do my own thing. And they'd say, like, so I'm a total outlier. And then when, like, 45 of their first 50 subjects were like, I'm a total, don't tell people to do what I did, you know, they started to realize that there was something going on here. So they actually named it the Dark, they renamed the project to be the Dark Horse Project, because most of these people viewed themselves as Dark Horses, having come out of nowhere to do what they did. And their, basically their common trait was sort of like, the anti-grit in a way. Not, not that they weren't resilient, but the part of the survey that asked about consistency of interests, where instead of setting these long-term plans, you know, like the commencement speech advice to picture who you're gonna be in 10 or 20 years and march confidently toward it, 
which is the, the investor Paul Graham is noted computer scientists call that premature optimization because you don't know where you should be going yet. Um, the dark horses all had this common strategy of short-term planning where they wouldn't look around and say, here's someone who's younger than me and has more than me. They would say, here's where I am right now. Here are my skills, here are my interests, here are the opportunities in front of me. Here's a hypothesis I have about something I want to learn or try. So I'm going to try this one and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And they do this like lots of zigzagging until they get to a spot that fits them really well. It's just doing this short-term planning and spending a lot of time reflecting on how it fit them. It's called self-regulatory learning and doing that kind of reflection. Um, and so that really is not, I mean, even they realized that wasn't the advice. And, and this, that resonated with me a lot personally. One, because I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I was for sure decided to become a writer. But, but also, even then when I got to SI, and aspiring which you entered SI as a temp your, fact checker, um, which is an amazing story in itself. And uh, they, so once I became a senior writer there, you know, you get contacted by aspiring sports writers, saying, "Well, what should I do if I want to work at SI?" And th the question was usually, "Should I major in English or journalism?" Mm -hmm. And my first instinct was to say journalism, and my second instinct was to say English, and then my third instinct was to say, "I have no idea. I majored in geology and astronomy." <laughs> But even for me, it was such a strong compulsion to say, like, well, obviously you should get a head start, right? So only now am I starting to become comfortable, like, not giving that advice. It's, it's hard to internalize. It's okay to zigzag. Uh, my final question here, because I see Alex with the mic. He's going to pass it off to all of you. Now you can take the stage and ask him. But what study, what study surprised you most when writing this book? Is there something that you can single out for us? Yeah, there was one, both because um, it was, it was surprising counterintuitive to me and because it was such a cool study. So it was this one done at the US Air Force Academy um, and they wanted to study, there's a chapter on, on learning techniques basically. And in this study they wanted to, they wanted to study the, the, the impact of teaching quality essentially. And the Air Force Academy provided this incredible experiment that you could never recreate in, in another way because they bring in their freshman class every year and those students all have to take a sequence of three math courses, Calculus 1, Calculus 2, then a follow-up course. And they are randomized to professors for Calculus 1, then they are re-randomized for Calculus 2, and then they are re-randomized for the next course. And they all have to take the exact same test, and it's graded by committee, so there's no subjectivity to it. And so you have this incredible experiment where you're randomizing and re-randomizing people, so you can really see the impact of the teacher over thousands of students. So they had 100 professors that, that were in the study over a decade. And what they found was that the better a professor did in Calculus 1 at causing their students to overperform based on those students' characteristics they came in with on the Calculus 1 exam, the worse those students then did in the follow-on courses. So for example, the professor whose students did the fifth best on Calculus 1 exam, the Calculus 1 professor, the students rated him the sixth best, was dead last out of 100 in how those students then went on to do in future courses. They then underperformed in future courses. So why was this? Well, the researchers found that this was because the way to get the quickest short-term improvement was to teach very narrow curriculum and what's called using procedures knowledge, which is essentially how to execute procedures over and over and over until they become automatic. The, the professors whose students struggled a little more in Calculus 1 but then went on to overperform in their, their future classes, they rated their professors lower because they felt more frustrated, learned making connections knowledge where they're, they have to tie together concepts. Instead of learning how to execute procedures, they learn how to match strategies to types of problems. And when you have to do what's called transfer, which is taking your knowledge and applying it to a problem you haven't seen before, which is what modern work basically requires, um, that m learning in a way that causes you to figure out how to match strategies to problems instead of execute procedures is crucial. And 
the scary thing, I mean, it was, and it was just so deeply counterintuitive to me um, that, and, th and this became one of the themes of the book, that the things that you can do to cause the most rapid improvement and that causes the learners to rate their own learning the best can undermine your long-term development. E even though I sort of knew that in sports, where we know that the way to develop the best 10-year-old is not the same as the way to develop the best 20-year-old, it was just deeply counterintuitive for me and an incredible study, um, so that was a real surprise. You guys have questions. Alex has the mic. Marvelous. Um, I listened to you being interviewed on WITF, too, so now I really have a good background in spite oh. of the fact I haven't read the book yet. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you coming for more of me. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wanted to come for I'm more. tired of hearing my own voice, so. <laughs> well, you do it well. <laughs> I was wondering how well the people that you found are the good generalists, the generalists who, I don't want to say are successful because I don't like the word success, uh, can deal with uncertainty and even prefer it and like improvisation. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did, okay. Um, that's an interesting point. One of, the, one of Abby Griffin, who studies the serial innovators, phrases that I left out was high tolerance for ambiguity. Um, and, and I think the chapter that bears the best on this is chapter uh, 10, which is about some work that people may, uh, that was the work that is probably the most familiar to people in the book, um, and it's about judgment, essentially testing people's judgment and ability to predict political and economic trends. And the study that went into this, actually th this was, I guess this one was, it, this one was as surprising to me when I first learned about it, I just learned about it a while ago, and this is a, this is a professor at Penn um, in Philly, named Philip Tetlock, who in the 80s started realizing that experts at, th at that point on American-Soviet relations would make predictions um, that were totally authoritative, immune to counter-argument, and mutually exclusive. And so he wanted to decide, you know, who would be right. And he didn't want to hear them saying the things we hear pundits say on TV a lot of times, which is, there's a strong possibility that, right? So he would study what, what percent people think that means, and it's incredibly variable. But, so he started a 20-year study that required 82,000 predictions of things that would happen in the future, political and economic trends. Um, and they had definite deadlines for each prediction, and you had to give percent chances of different outcomes, and it was scored in this kind of elaborate way. And the conclusion was basically that the more narrow the specialist, what he called the hedgehogs, um, so this from, this from this philosophy essay by Isaiah Berlin, the hedgehog knows one big thing and the fox knows many little things. The hedgehogier someone was, uh, the worse they were, basically, because they would bend every, um, every possibility into their lens of their single specialty. And that, that dovetails with something that Daniel Kahneman, you know, won the Nobel Prize for illuminating cognitive bias, calls the inside view. They had this one lens, and they knew so much information inside of it that they could fit any story to create it. Whereas the foxes sometimes had an area of expertise, sometimes didn't, but either way, they roamed way outside of it and aggregated perspectives. So they needed specialists. I don't mean to denigrate specialists. I think we need both. But they would use them for information instead of opinions. They had very high tolerance for ambiguity. They updated their beliefs a lot, right? They flip-flopped like crazy. Like, we, we punished politicians for flip-flopping. I think so, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it, it is improvisation. So they would see their own ideas as hypotheses in need of testing, and they would constantly update their mental models. Tetlock likened it to dragonfly eyes. So dragonflies have thousands of lenses on their eyes that each take a different picture and then it integrates in the brain. And so he would identify them as, as like these mental model collectors. And that, that the follow-on study to that 
was sponsored by IARPA, which commissions research on the US intelligence communities, like most pressing challenges. And to their credit, they decided to have a prediction tournament and say, you know, can university-led teams beat our intelligence analysts who have access to classified info, and you guys don't have classified info. And so Tetlock and Barbara Mellers, his wife and collaborator, decided to look for people in the general public who had those wide-ranging interests that they had looked for, and they beat a market of intelligence analysts with access to classified information by 30%, right, with no access to classified information. Wide-ranging reading habits, not only that, huge tolerance for, um, for ambiguity, but when they were put on teams of 12 together, their, their individual predictions became 50% more accurate because of the way they would politely antagonize each other, basically. Um, and, and update their mental models. And, and if you watch their conversations, one of which I, I excerpt in there, it's like this, it's like constant improvisation. They're like constantly changing their ideas and sort of triangulating like this and no grand theory. Like jazz music, so jazz, there's a chapter three is on music, so this, this parallel, the parallel is not implicit in the book. Question in the back. Hi, I wanna, I wanna first thank both of you for coming to Harrisburg and the Midtown Scholar to speak to us today. Um, so I'm a Sports Illustrated subscriber. I've been getting the magazine since the 1970s when I was a kid. Hmm. And just a few days ago in the current issue, there's an article about a 13-year-old girl in California who's a soccer phenom mm -hmm. named Olivia Moultrie. So I you know, read the article about how obsessed she is and she's training like crazy to be the best player in the world. And I went online, Googled her name, you know, watched a lot of her videos. I mean, she's got amazing skills for a 13-year-old girl. So, I, but I, you know, after listening to your talk, um, I'm wondering if she's doing the right thing, just putting so much focus into soccer. Like, if you could speak to her and her parents, what advice would you well, give her? Well, and the her? soccer community has read his book. I mean, the soccer community yeah. very, right? Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. When I started writing about this specialization stuff, I get these messages from Europe saying, like, maybe you're dumb American sports, but, like, not in our sport. And so I started looking, and I'm like, no, actually, a lot of the research has come from <laughs> soccer. So right after Germany won the World Cup, they had a study came out that followed the development of a bunch of their different leagues, but also the players who went on to the World Cup, and it found more unstructured play, more other sports. Didn't matter if it's formal sports, you know. Um, not more organized practice in amateur league players until age 22, right? And then they did another study where they matched kids for ability at age 11 and 12, tracked them over several years, and see who got better. And it was the kids who did more unstructured stuff. Um, because at first I thought maybe it was just going to be a talent selection issue, but then there's studies starting appearing like that. So first of all, I think Chris Ballard wrote that, right? Because I think he was calling me for something, and I didn't call him back, so oh well. Um, I meant to. Um, <laughs> So, new book and newborn, he'll let me off the hook. Um, and uh, my first answer is I don't know what that family is doing overall. So I don't, I don't think it's a problem to practice a lot or practice hard. I think it's a question of what else is going on. And, you know, if you go to, like, the French soccer development pipeline or in Brazil, the kids are playing a ton, but they're playing futsal. They're not even playing soccer, those kids who go on to become the pros. And futsal has small ball and... You'll play one day they're on sand, and the next day they're on cobblestones, and it's you know this a big the space the size of this stage or a basketball court, and and I think the thing about playing different sports is really just a proxy for diversity of movement and diversity of problem solving. I don't think it actually matters that you put on the jersey of another sport, and so I think futsal is a great developmental sport in that way. And so, if she's getting that stuff in, then I think it might be okay. 
um, like Cirque du Soleil, for example, and, and it makes them less fragile, started having their performers learn the basics of three other performers' disciplines, not because they were going to perform them, but because it, it dropped their injury rates by 30%. Um, it makes you less fragile for some reason. We have theories, but I don't know that any's right, but it just does. And so I think it depends what else she's doing, really. But I think what you want to be, be wary about is, so there's a famous study of uh, Swedish tennis players from youth to the pros, some of whom went on to become top 10 in the world, some of whom went on to become top 100 in the world. And one of the real patterns that emerged there was when a girl got identified as talented really young, she would get taken away from what she was doing that had been working and put in what the researchers called a more restrictive environment, where someone would say like, oh, you did your thing, but now we can make you really good. And then they put them in and they lose all that self-directed play and now they have to start drilling. And most of them were gone by age of 17, right? So, so I think there's a devil in the details. I don't think it's bad to play a lot, but I hope she's getting an improvisational play, a lot of diversity of movement, and that she doesn't get put in that kind of restrictive environment that will, and, and, th and that was way more with girls that were good than with boys. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of devils in details. So I wouldn't just automatically say because she is good young that they're doing stuff wrong. I'd have to know like more about the specifics. Because I don't think there's, I don't think there's, like I wouldn't tell people like make sure you're bad when you're young, you know, like. <laughs> Question in the back. Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, memorable and compelling stuff in your book, and one of the most was, one of the most memorable and compelling was uh, the drop your tools. Oh, yeah. Could you say something about, share about that? Did you say, could I say something about it? Yeah. Um, this was, he said he felt the most memorable chapter, which was also the hardest, like, chunk of writing I have ever, yeah, that one just about killed me. Um, this, this chapter, it's called Learning to Drop Your Familiar Tools, um, is about how um, specialists can often get like so attached to certain procedures or um, tools that they sort of cease to realize that they are working a certain situation and when the situation changes, they don't anymore. Um, and the dropping your tools is from this sociologist named Carl Wyke who noticed that these very elite firefighters, smoke jumpers and hotshot firefighters who go into wilderness fires when they would die, um, they would die with their tools still next to them. And when they were close to safety, even if they had dropped their tools, they could run and survive. And most of them still wouldn't, and that kept happening. And so they would go into a fire, something unusual would happen, and they'd be told to drop their tools and they wouldn't do it. And, and even so, the reports would say that they'd find the bodies and they'd still have their tools. And in some cases, when one would drop it and survive, they would do weird things like look for a safe place to put their axe or dig a hole and bury it, right? Cause, and, and they'd report saying, I couldn't believe I was dropping my axe and these things. And so for him, that was sort of this allegory where he then started looking in other disciplines and seeing that certain types of training could sometimes cause specialists to be very effective when a situation was repetitive, but that those tools would become, you know, they would no more realize those were external than their own arms and they would, they would cease being able to improvise, essentially. Um, and so in, he looked through airplane accidents and the um, primarily the, the most common cause of, of human decision error in commercial airplane problems was sticking to like the same plan when to any outside observer it obviously the situation had changed and this wasn't a good thing anymore, right? Like, like people would stick to a plan when, and like run into the ground because they were going through familiar procedures when anyone on the outside could see that wasn't the thing to do. And so I get into this in, in other fields, um, and particularly with, with NASA and some of these things, and how you can diversify. So th this part gets to, late in the book I talk about 
I move away from individuals and talk about organizations and, and systems. And this chapter is more about how organizations can essentially diversify their cultures in a way that knocks people out of that um, sense of just automatically using certain types of procedures and tools. We have time for maybe one or two more questions. Hi, thank is this on? Yeah, there it is. Okay, thank you so much. I actually look forward to reading thank the you. book. I haven't gotten a chance to, but what you were talking about, and maybe you were just, maybe you've touched on it, is human-centered design. Mm -hmm. Do you know about that with mm -hmm. organizational mm -hmm. development? And I was reflecting that a lot of what you were saying sort of is the philosophy behind human-centered design, because one step is to then look outside of the organization and find an analogous situation yeah. in a totally different industry and yeah. bring that in. Yeah, I mean, so chapter five is all about analogical problem solving and how the best problem solvers, um, instead of taking that inside view where they look at all the details of what's right in front of them, they will look take, take what Kahneman and Tversky call the outside view where they look for problems that have an analogous deep structure, maybe different surface features, but an analogous deep, deep structure and they look across a lot of them and, and that's sort of what they use for problem solving. And so in that chapter, it looks at scientific labs and, and how the use of analogies is like predicts how, whether they'll make breakthroughs or not, analogies from outside their domain. And, and one study I loved where this woman at Northwestern named Deidre Gentner is probably the world's expert in analogical problem solving, like using you know, partly what you're related, related to what you're talking about. And she did this study where she basically gave, long story short, students these problems and ask them to identify the deep structure of the problems. Um, and this is sort of explained in more detail in the book, but, and the students were good at doing it within their major, but the only students who were good at doing it outside of their major um, were these students in what was called the ISP program, the Integrated Science Program. Those students had no major. They had a minor in like six different things. They just take classes here and here and here and here. And they learn how to identify, you know, so there's this classic research finding that can be summarized as, breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. What that means is the broader your training is, the more you're able to transfer that knowledge to things you have never seen before. So if you're gonna see the same thing over and over, narrow training, fine. But if you have to see problems you haven't encountered before, then that broad training builds those conceptual models that you can, that making connections knowledge. The thing was when I went around Northwestern and asked other faculty about that ISP program, they were like, not good, those students get behind. And so that spoke to me because here you have the world's expert in analogical problem solving on your faculty saying these of our students are the best problem solvers and her colleagues saying like behind, which I'm just like, that just like gives me a headache, you know, so. This will be our last question to the left. I just have um, kind of going along with what you were saying about uh, like the breadth of training, breadth of transfer, everything it seems to me and this is just how it stuck out to me, but was focused on, hey, let's give diversity of play at a really, really young age, or, and now here, once we're in college, um, yeah, I don't know if you should major in English or journalism, because I didn't do either of those things, and here I am a writer. Um, but I, I teach high school, um, mm -hmm. and so I kind of wonder then, too, what does that sort of look like, either being pushed up from the younger ages or pushed down from the higher ages? Like, do you have an opinion or thoughts on how we make something that is very, very structured, kind of at the heart of it, like four years of English, four years of science, yeah. four years of this, into a more generalized field to kind of better equip kids moving forward. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge structural question. And, and let me start a little older than that, which is one of the studies I like to have an economist who looked at 
the higher ed in Scotland and England, and England you have to specialize mid-teen years because you have to decide what you're gonna apply to in university in Scotland, basically the same education system, except uh, you, you don't specialize as soon, and you can actually continue sampling if you want to quite a bit. And he said, who wins this trade-off? And it turned out that um, the early specializers do jump out to an income lead. They have more skill-specific, I mean domain-specific skills. But by the um, later specializers pick better matches, and so their growth rates are higher. So by year six, they catch and pass the early specializers. And the early specializers start quitting their careers in much higher numbers. They're basically made to choose too soon, um, so they make worse choices. Like, I, I like to think of it as like if we thought of careers like we do dating, we wouldn't tell people to settle down so quickly, right? Because you learn things about yourself and you can make better matches. Um, and, and by the way, the period from your late teens to your late 20s is the fastest time of personality change over your whole life. So you're in the position of choosing something for a person you don't really know yet. Um, and so I think, oh, and the other thing, so the reason I brought this up was the kids in England very often picked things that were related to things they had done in high school because that was what they knew. Right, so it sort of limits their match, their ability to make match quality. So, so I would love to see maybe a little more of that kind of talent-based branching where you make more things available and one of a teacher or mentor's role is to say, well, how did this fit you? you know, and how did this, let's reflect on how this fit. But there are also things that, that kids have to learn, right? And, and that's difficult. And so what I think, um, I just saw a math study. This was 13-year-olds, I think. What age are your, your students? Four, so it's close. Um, and so, so this is a tip that's only semi-related, but this is in chapter four on learning strategies. So this study, these 13-year-olds in math classrooms were randomly assigned to different types of, of training for math. Some of them got what's called blocked practice. They get a problem type AAAA, type BBBBB, type CCCCC. The other got what's called interleaved practice, and this is in chapter four, which means no, you never get the same problem type twice, or if you do, it's randomly, it's all mixed up. But they all studied the same problems. Come test time, the interleaved group, the interleaved group more frustrated, right, says they're learning less, come test time when they have to transfer, destroys the block practice group. The effect size was on the order of taking a kid from the 50th percentile to the 80th percentile, right? Obviously I picked 50th percentile because at the top of the curve a standard deviation doesn't move it as far, so I just picked the most, you know, impressive example there. But, um, <laughs> but so I think some of those techniques without changing structural things about education, we could be doing a lot better. The problem is they make the kids frustrated, they may write their teachers worse. If the test is like short term, you know, that, that could be a problem because it, it, they have to, it takes them a little while to get that learning. And so I think the, the testing, you know, I, I think it's like the 10 year old sports coaches. If you incentivize calculus one professors in the Air Force or teachers in high school to make the best eight year old team, then that's what they're gonna do and not set the person up to be the best 20 year old. So I would start with trying to have a little bit more sampling, trying to, Make, maybe con connect types of problem solving cross disciplines, but without changing anything, just mixing up the sort of learning styles. Um, so, and chapter four is about those, those learning techniques. But yeah, but I mean, I think about this a lot because there's so many forces at play in the education system and teachers are asked to, or held accountable for so many things that are not in their control, really. Um, and and so, so I actually think one of the structural things is that we need to build some bridges from teachers to other domains so they can understand that challenge better and that we can all support it better rather than just like testing and now they're doing a crappy job, you know? So, so I think the structural change needs to come also from outside in the rest of society uh, to support this, this kind of learning and, and, and developing experience um, 
you know, and bringing people from other domains into schools or creating opportunities for kids. Because I, I just don't think, like, teachers are already asked to do a ton. And, and I think held accountable for things that they have little influence over, in my opinion. Can we give it up for David? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I say, just one other thing I want to say is I, I love independent bookstores. And I think, like, we all want bookstores in our neighborhoods. And there's a very easy way to support them, um, which is buying the book here instead of on Amazon. So you don't have to buy my book, but obviously this is a beautiful bookstore, so maybe buy a book. Um, so thank you very much for having me here. Thank you, guys. Thanks again to David. Oh, Thanks again to Molly. We're going to have a book signing on the stage here. Books are available for purchase at you have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings. <laughs>